I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Peter Wygant of Wygant Selections on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Nice to see you. It's very nice to be here. So you were studying to be a lawyer. I was back in the early early 70s. It was when I started law school. And uh, about that same time, I got interested in wine. And how did that come about? Well, just really uh, tasting uh, with family. Uh, my, older, my older sister, older brother... Uh, had started to enjoy wine because from in our family we didn't we didn't have wine when I was growing up. It's not something that we you know did as a you know I didn't grow up in a wine making family or a, in the wine business at all. Was it exotic to you for that reason? You're kind of like, hey, what is this? I I think there was a little bit of of that, but also it just really tasted good. It uh, it was another sort of experiential level. And so you're there kind of preparing for torts and case law class, and you're like, hey, what about Bordeaux? Yeah, my, my mind actually did wonder once in a while, um, thinking about the next tasting, because I, I organized a, a little tasting group when I was in law school, and uh, you know, read a lot about it, got, really got interested in it. What was the next progression for you along your route into wine? Uh, my second year of law school was at NYU, uh, and there I really got sort of immersed in the whole New York culture and, and, you know, buying wine and learning about wine and, on, you know, on a firsthand, firsthand level. Um, cause in those days, um, it seemed expensive to me at the time, but, uh, I could buy 1970 second growth Bordeaux for about $5 a bottle and first growth Bordeaux for about $12, $13 a bottle. I remember still my wife sitting there on a, on the steps outside of a, a wine shop debating whether we should buy that bottle of 1970 Latour for $13.65 or not. I, I finally persuaded her, yeah, it was a good idea. Kind of like uh, <clears throat> Apple stock back in the day. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I, never, I didn't do that, though, unfortunately. So you were organizing buying trips, and then you also moved from the Midwest to the East Coast. You're in New York, then Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, 1981, we moved Pennsylvania. And uh, continued on, you know, buying, enjoying, collecting, uh, learning from retailers. Because in those days, uh, we didn't have all of the 
the experts and all the writers that we have now. So your one source was was really pretty much your your retailer. A few, the English like uh, Harry Waugh, Michael Broadbent. You know, I read, of course, uh, Frank Schoonmaker's Encyclopedia, Lexi Lachine. But but there were no like periodicals like we have in the last twenty years, twenty five years. One of those retailers sort of connected you with a trip to Burgundy. Yeah. In 1985, um, my wife and I took like our first vacation in like 10 years. Um, my parents agreed to take kids <laughs> so we could get away. And we went to, we went to France for about a week. I can't remember the exact length, but, um, a retailer in, in Maryland, uh, Rick Austrian was his name at State Line. Um, let me kind of tag along with him. Um, he went, he was, you know, going with uh, importer distributor friends, uh, arranged appointments for him. And he was, he was nice enough and they were generous enough to let me tag along with him. What were some of those visits? Uh, the ones that, that stand out were, um, uh, Ponceau, uh, Claude Lombre, uh, Monjard Muneret, um, Le Fleuve, Metro, um, I think they actually even got me into, we even actually went to Roman and Conti. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't and, know why it took me so long to remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you uh, import Claude Lambre today, so that's almost kind of like a full circle. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I, actually, I, I thought about that on my, on my first professional visit to Lambre. It was uh, just about exactly 10 years to the date after my first visit there with, uh, with Rick. So you taste a lot of wine. You're there in 85, so that's a year that was quite good, but it was still being harvested at that time, so you're probably tasting 83s and 84s. Yeah, tasting mostly 83s, yeah. And then maybe they pull out some some older vintages for you now and again. Yeah, at the end of every uh, every tasting, there was a very generous opening of, you know, like library selections, and, uh, you know, you don't go and... Spit 1969, uh, you know, Grand Cru. You know. So uh, after a, a long day of tasting and uh, not always spitting, it uh, it was a long day. Didn't I wouldn't say I was so much uh, cognitively affected as I had never tasted wines like that before. You know, a whole day of tasting seven, eight, ten wines at one place, then then having a little sip, uh, then going on to the next place and doing the same thing. And, you know, like a, you got over 100, you, you know, and uh, I'd probably, the most I'd probably ever done was 10. And uh, so I got really like palate fatigue. Um, and that was a, was a new experience for us. And uh, <clears throat> so anyway, came time to for dinner. And uh, as we were driving up and down the Route Nationale 74. Um, that day we saw a little sign for an auberge up in the Haute-Côte. Um, <clears throat> it was called the Ferme de Roll. And we thought that would be nice, just to go up and be a nice little peaceful place for dinner. So that's what we did. Yeah, so it's all kind of coming back. Um, so we're there. Uh, it, was a, it was a nice place. Uh, they have this uh, kind of a big open fireplace and their specialty was to grill 
stuff on the fire and you know particularly fresh hams they would they'd grill that and uh i remember that's what we got and uh we <laughs> we got to the time you would to order and we just agreed that we couldn't order another glass of wine after that whole day of wine so we ordered a beer and um <clears throat> there was it was kind of a brasserie type arrangement so it was along long tables and then chairs on each side and the uh, sort of next table next to us, or the family next to us, uh, was obviously French. And it was a husband and wife and their two children, two young children. And um, <clears throat> so it was about uh, halfway through the meal. They could tell that I couldn't speak any French because uh, my wife was doing all the talking with the, with the servers. Um, but about halfway through the meal, the gentleman said, uh, t- uh, turned to my wife or got my wife's attention and said to her in French, you know, excuse us, but uh, we can't help but make an observation that here you are in, in Burgundy, and there are wines here in Burgundy, and we're just curious why you're at this restaurant and you're not drinking any wine, or you're drinking beer. And so she explained uh, to him uh, the both the, the joys in the, of the day, but also the predicament we, we were in. And he said, well, you know, um, if you'd like to taste um, burgundies that don't fatigue your palate, or maybe not, uh, you're welcome to come visit us tomorrow morning if you'd like. And, uh, and so we did. It was, that was a Saturday night, I remember that, because I was really quite surprised that someone would receive us on a Sunday morning. But it was 11 o'clock, they asked us to come over on 11 o'clock Sunday morning, and we did, and it was, uh, it was really fun because... You know, not only was were the wine superb, but it was like our first time on our own. You know, we weren't with people in the trade. Uh, uh, it was a very different sort of dynamic. And they were lovely people. Um, and it was just a really good time. And the and the wines left an indelible impression. What was the name of that producer? <clears throat> that was Jackie Trucheau. And his wife, Lillian. Uh, and their two children, Alexander and, and Valerie. Uh, were with them, and that time they were very young. <laughs> now they're fully grown, have children of their own, so forth. And it was called Trucho Martin back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, the name, for example, Monjar Munieray, um is another example in in Europe. Uh, quite often, the uh, the husband's wife, the fir- or the husband's name, is hyphenated with the wife's maiden name. So it was Jackie Trucheau, and Lillian's maiden name was Martin. Um, her family was actually uh, Georges Martin, who was uh, the main sort of equipment uh, supplier uh, in the Cote de Nuit at that time. He had a, he had a, a display, or, or his, his office or his facility was located right across the Route Nationale from uh, Maurice Saint-Denis. You ended up calling your own company a hyphenated name, Wygant Metzler. Yeah. Um, well, we we didn't know what to call. We we decided after visiting them that you know after a few months thinking about it, we thought we would I would like to try to import uh, a little wine and particularly their wine. Um, and so, it, in the process of coming up with a name, we thought that would be kind of interesting kind of nice, you know, to kind of imitate the, the European uh, fashion of doing so. So um, my wife's maiden name was Metzler. 
Um, so it wasn't really going to be a commercial venture. So we thought, well, there's no really terrible harm in naming a company something that nobody can pronounce. Uh, so we, we just did it. <laughs> and what was the first vintage of the True Show wines that you brought in? The, the first vintage was the 1984. Um, we started with them, I think it was the end of 86, beginning of 87. And, um, you know, so the 85s were just going to be bottled. And the 84s were a very challenging vintage. Uh, people might remember. Uh, very, very light in color. Um, and it was difficult. But Jackie's Wines, even in 84, had their his unmistakable imprint of, of fruit and spice and character. And uh, it was difficult. Certainly, um, because of the light color and also because the wines were completely unknown. Um, but um, I think I might still have one bottle left, just just as a, a memory. Because he had taken over in the late 70s after Jackie came back from the Algerian War. So it had actually been called something else earlier. Yeah. J- Jackie, um, back before... The war in Algeria started with his cousin to work for his cousin. Jackie grew up on a farm um, and worked for his cousin, Henri Mofray. And then he was drafted into the, into the war in Algeria. And after that, um, he came back and, and worked with the, Mof- with the Mofrays and uh, later met, met Lilian. And they were married. And um, in 1978... Um, Monsieur Mofray died, and uh, I don't know for a fact whether they had agreed before or after his death to to sell the estate uh, like on an installment kind of basis to Jackie and Lillian because the Mofrays had no children. So it it wasn't that well known, and it also it was under a new name. It was fairly new at that time because you're bringing in the '84s, and he kind of took over in '79. So, but yeah, Jackie had never commercialized. He had just been selling to Negos and just a f- you know bottles to to private customers. He hadn't done any export to and, that point. And he's mostly famous <laughs> for Maurice Saint Denis, but he made other communes as well. Yeah, but certainly Maurice Saint Denis. Uh, his his bench if we, benchmark or flagship wine was the was the Clos Orbe, because because and then he uh, owned the better part of the Premier Cru Clos Orbe. Um, he also had uh, vineyards in Gevray, Chambertin, uh, Village, and and Gevray Premier Cru Combat, and Charm Chambertin, and then also a small parcel in Chambord Musigny. Chambord Premier Cru Sentier. Um, but most of his vineyards were in, in Maurice Saint Denis. And it was actually the Clos Sorbet that he held on to the longest after he sold some of the other parcels. And, and no, he sold, I believe, all of the, the main part of the estate um, all, all together. Uh, just kept a tiny parcel of Le Sorbet, not the Clos, but Le Sorbet, which is just behind a wall from the Clos. A few percent of a hectare a few are got it and you had mentioned light color that's something i sort of associated with Trousseau throughout his career in, in many different vintages was that ever a challenge in the market it was always a challenge um at the beginning um it wasn't until later that 
particularly when when David Shuknack started writing about his wines, that I think people really understood that color wasn't that important. Uh, many journalists said that color is not important in Burgundy, but I but ironically, the wines that they scored the highest were the ones with the most color. And what I think two people started to learn with experience in, with Jackie's wines was that even though they were light in color early on, they didn't lose any color like most Burgundies do. And after 10, 12 years, his wines were the same color as everybody else's, pretty much. But he's often thought of today as someone who produced somewhat of a unique style. He never went to an analogy school. He sort of had his own methods. How would you talk about those methods? And was it a unique style? Well, I harvested there every year. Um, I missed 2003 because it was so early that I didn't get my plane taken in time. But uh, one, two, four, five. And I don't pretend at all to understand Jackie's secrets. Um because they really, because no one can quite do what he did. Um, but I know that he destemmed, um, and I know that he did not believe in extracting tannins. Didn't feel that tannin had much to do with great Burgundy, or at least the Burgundies that he liked. And he he always told me that he makes wines that he likes. <clears throat> if people like them, that's great. If they don't. It's okay, but he's making them because he likes wines like the way he makes them. So there was no long pre there was no pre fermentation maceration. There was no elevation of of fermentation temperatures. Uh, so it was fairly, I think, a fairly cool fermentation. <clears throat> but I honestly did not spend time, you know, in the cellar after harvest with him. So what I'm saying is probably specu- somewhat speculation. But uh, uh, that's what I know. Sometimes when people talk about Trousseau, they say that in an era where low yields was being very uh, lauded in the press, he he was keeping his yields a little higher. Is that something that you also observed? Yeah, I think Jackie, it's no exaggeration that that Jackie made the rondement. You know, he, he was allowed to do 50 hectoliter for the village. He did 50 hectoliter. Um, he didn't, I don't think he really believed that you had to have draconian yields to, to make the wines in the style that he wanted. Now, certainly in vintages like 03, 05, 01, you know, where there was less yield, he, you know, he made less, but, uh, you know, there was, I don't ever remember anything, you know, him talking about things in the teens or 20s, you know. <clears throat> and you worked with the wines for 30 years on the market, give or take. And was it somewhat odd to see the change after he retired in terms of the fame of the wines? Well, yes, it it, it was. Um, particularly, in you know, in comparing after 2005 with the late 80s and the early 90s when it was <clears throat> so difficult to you know, convince people of the, the merits of these beautiful wines. But it's like everything, I think, with human nature that uh, if you can't get something anymore, it, all of a sudden it's something that one has to have. How <clears> would <throat> you sum up the different wines that he did make? I mean, I know he made a Pasta Grande, 
and he made little grand cru and as you said the sorbet if you were to talk about some of the differences between the range of wines that he made were there things that stood out for you that perhaps weren't what you'd normally think of as the generalization from that particular commune or vineyard all of them were very different to me um they each had their own character they each had their own terroir it's true that they were different um, from other people's. For example, his Clos La Roche was quite different from Ponceau's Clos de La Roche. Um, but within his style, each one was very expressive. I mean, you you know, we always play around when I would come to blind taste and guess which, which wine it was. And, uh, you know, after a while I got pretty good at it, you know, because but it wasn't that hard because the wines were so expressive. Somebody else I think of in your portfolio has a, uh, had a really expressive style was Vatan, which is another small grower that you worked with in, in the Loire Valley. Mm-hmm. How did you end up discovering Vatan? Well, I was on a, another trip a few years later, actually with Rick again. He, he came with me this time. Um, and uh, we were in a restaurant in uh, Sancerre, and uh, very nice sommelier there. His name was Didier Turpin. And a few years after that, he opened his own restaurant in uh, in Sancerre called the Pomme d'Or, which is a really nice place. We had struck, struck up a conversation and uh, you know, learned you know, that we were in the trade. And so the first thing that any French sommelier is going to do to any American in the trade is to give him a glass of wine and tell him to try to guess it you know, blind. And uh, so he did that, and uh, we guessed that it was Kota, and uh, he said, yeah, you're right. Um, so we started talking a little bit about Kota's wines, and he said, well, there, there are only two producers left in Sancerre who make wines like this, the Kota brothers and Edmond Vatin. But Edmond Vatin is so small, he makes the Cotard brothers look like a big enterprise. And he said, he even he can't get the wines. Um, but I was really curious. So I look, looked up his number in the phone book and uh, called him the next morning. And uh, he said it'd be okay for me to come over. So we did. And I tasted them. And uh, yeah, it was an experience kind of similar to that first, first time I tasted Jackie's wines. It was a... Uh, you know, tasting a wine unlike any other Sancerre and any other white wine I'd ever had. So that was really nice, and we st- he let me buy some. So that was the beginning. I worked with him since from from 1989, um, you know, until a couple of years ago when he could no longer uh, do it and has t- turned it over to his daughter, Anne. Um, he just kind of helps, you know, consults and helps her, you know, gives her advice, but she's doing all the winemaking now. And what was it that he was doing, do you think? Oftentimes I hear traditional method, but what, what did that mean for Vatan? Well, that first visit, um, we tasted out of both barrels and tank. And he was alternating between vinification in one and then racking into the other and vice versa. And uh, <clears throat> I don't think I have any photographs of them, 
but the barrels left a lasting impression. It was in this tiny, tiny cubicle of a cellar, and these barrels were white with mold. Uh, they were 100-year-old Martinique uh, rum barrels. And the, the, the ones that were empty, there was a sulfur wick hanging in them. And that was the extent of his uh, hygiene. <laughs> um, so it was pretty neat tasting out of those, those barrels. But then after, after several years, I can't remember when, the, bit, the, the barrels disappeared. And it was all, from that point on, it was all done in old en enameled uh, steel. Not stainless steel, but enameled. Those probably dated back to the maybe 40s. And he had parcels in Le Mondames. His white, his Sauvignon was all in the Mont uh, Actually, the name Clos La Neor is a parcel pretty much in the center of the Mont and then his uh, Pinot Noir were on the facing, so north, northeast facing slope, slightly different terroir, and certainly a different exposition. Because I've only seen the Pinot Noir once. I had the O3 one time. Did he produce it every year? Or was it quite small in production? 2003, to my understanding, was his last vintage. He sold, he sold those parcels after that vintage, and he sold some of the, the Sauvignon also about that time, I believe, because now it's only one hectare. How do you recall this, the Pinot Noir that he made? Well, it was a little bit like Jackie's. Um, you know, certainly no pre-fermentation maceration, or, and the, the fermentation temperature was whatever nature was that year. If it was a cool harvest, it was a cool fermentation. If it was a hot, if the, if it was hot that September, October, it was a it was a warm fermentation. But uh, he did not destem. It was all traditional whole cluster fermentation. How did you find the white wines to age? They are extraordinary. Um, I mean, I've kept the first vintage, the 88, and it's still fine. Um, I've had 83. I have a little 83, one or two bottles of 83. Um, and I've had some older vintages with, with Mr. Vatton. And... Uh, they're just absolutely uh, extraordinary, remarkable. Um, they're not like any other dry wine that I can think of, except perhaps maybe uh, the old Ramones when Pierre was making them. And another producer back in Burgundy that you brought in was Chermet <clears throat> in Beaujolais. How did you end up finding Chermet? Um, this was back in... Uh, early 1992, I believe. Um, and if, if I'm correct, we found a brochure uh, somewhere in Paris. It might have even been the airport or something, or maybe I got it in the U.S. and brought it with me. But it was, in those days, there, there were no um, trade shows. Um, there, there were no... Um, there was no, there were no French publications on wine like Revue de Vin de France, um, so there really wasn't much way that producers made it known, other than sort of the best restaurants um, and the most knowledgeable sommelier um, knew who the best were. Uh, but for a young producer, 
are a producer from a less well-known appellation, it was hard. And so, you know, they would, they would put, you know, information about themselves and whatever <laughs> little publications, you know, would come along, I guess. I don't know. But I read, we, we read about them and they had, we had heard also that Willie's Wine Bar in Paris, which at that time was still new or not, you know, hadn't been around a long time, carried those wines as well. And we went to visit them and uh, really, really liked them. Just a, a beautiful style of Beaujolais. And that became really one of the, the cornerstones of our, of our portfolio, that, that style of natural Beaujolais. In fact, natural wines. Would you think of someone like Fatan or Truchot as a, a natural producer? Yeah, I would. <clears throat> all of our producers, I've always uh, looked to find people who did things naturally. And, and I grant you that that's a vague word. Um, not necessarily organic or biodynamic. But, but for me, the most important thing about great wine is the grape growing process. And you can just tell when you start talking to the, to the right kind of person, the right-minded kind of person, that they're, what they're doing in the vineyard, and it's always the same. And, and whether it's organic or biodynamic or sustainable, it's the work by the grower with their hands in the vineyard being you know, personally involved. And a, a great example of that for me is, is Laurent Charvin in Chardonnay du Pop. Uh, I don't think Laurent is necessarily organic, um, but there isn't a more natural uh, grower probably in my portfolio than he, um, because he just, you know, he really walks the walk. I mean, he is in the vines all the time, working the vines, you know, tilling them by hand and, and you know, getting involved with, you know, the culture of, of, of each vine. And that's where it's that's where it's done. That enables the grower to to harvest at that <clears throat> that magical, almost um, impossible to describe balance between complete ripeness, physiological ripeness, but not at the expense of acidity and freshness in the grape. And that's and that's the secret of great wine. How are you introduced to Charvon? Well, again, we were reading anything we get our hands on, and I think one of them was we looked actually at the results of the Concours General of the Agri you know Ag Concours Agricole in Paris. You know, every year they would give a gold medal and a silver medal and a bronze medal to a Chateauneuf and to a Cote Roti and to a someone down the line, and. Um, the one for Chateauneuf du Pop, the gold went to Charvin, and the, the silver went to to one that that I that I'd heard of. The, I knew they were good, and the bronze went to one that I knew they were they were good. So I figured, well, this guy that got the gold, he must be okay too. Um, so we we found him, went to visit him. That was I think January of ninety uh, two, and it was the nineteen ninety. And we met, we met him, and, and it turns out that that was the first wine he ever made. He had just finished uh, viticulture school at Bone, uh, 
you know, in 1990 and uh, joined his father. And uh, the 1990 har harvest was his, the first one he made. And <laughs> he, got, he got the gold medal in Paris and uh, Mr. Parker tasted it. And I think he gave it like 90, I can't remember, it was 92 or 94 points or something like that. Because sometimes I feel when producers have a lot of Grenache in a wine, the alcohol and the blousiness can sort of be noticeable. But I never had that sensation with Charvon, and I wonder why that might be in in your thought. Well, again, the the the, the word is balance, and and that's a nebulous word. You know, it's difficult to talk about it. Um, but a wine that is high in alcohol can be can be balanced. A wine that's low in alcohol can be out of balance. A wine that's 12, 12.5% 12 alcohol can be hot on the palate. And a wine that's 14 15% can taste fresh on the palate. Um, and the reason is because the wine is balanced. Um, I know I, I admit that's a little bit like putting the rabbit in the hat. Um, but when you taste, you, you see what's, go what's going on. Um, and for me, particular heat on a, on a wine is something that sticks out. And that, as you said, uh, Charvin's wines have just extraordinary balance. And, and even though they're 15%, you know, most in particularly these last years, like 07 and 09 and 10, um, there's never a sensation of, of heat on the finish. And has that been an issue more in the Rhone? Because I feel like the Rhone has been an area you've explored to some degree with more and more rising temperatures. Yeah, the the rising temperatures, but also I think there's a there's a there's a trend in the winemaking um, <clears throat> to to get even more ripeness, perhaps even like over ripeness, sear maturity, um, and then extra extraction, um, and and um, you know those wines um, certainly are are valid and have a great following and uh, are very well very well received in the press and is of a style that I think is very popular and uh, is you know certainly a one that many many people like um, but it's not so much a style that that we're we're looking for so. You know, people like Charvin and Philippe Brave at Domaine Ferrand, um, those are more of the, the style that, uh, you know, the, the, the terroir, the spice, the, the finesse are things that I look for, even in big wines. Because you actually make Grenache yourself now in the Rhone. You got involved with a project down there. How did that come about and how did you decide to, to approach the winemaking of those wines? Well, let me be uh, real, real clear about that. I don't make the wine. I don't, I don't pretend that I can make wine. Um, no, it's it's with uh, Baptiste Grangeon, uh, who is the owner of Domaine de Christia, and um, he approached me a few couple of years ago about this idea of uh, acquiring this uh, couple of parcels, and together, and he would do the you know, all the vineyard work and the vinification, but it would be something that would be just ours and it would be done sort of along the ideas or the, 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 the I guess the philosophy, if you will, that, that I was, would like to try to, to do as an experiment. So he was amenable with that and uh, so we got started. And the first vintage was 2009. 
It is, it's two parcels. Um, one of them is in the Lier de uh, Gigas, and the other one is at the top of the, the Lier de called Pignot. And um, the vines at, at the, in, the, in the Pignot um, adjoin the edge of the parcels of Grenache of Chateau Reyes, in, uh, in their Chateau Neuf de Pop Reyes. Um, <clears throat> so both parcels are sand. Um, the one that adjoins the, the vineyards of Reyes is a very light sand. Um, there's practically no, well, there's no Galle Roulet to speak of in either parcel. Um, and it's at one of the highest elevations in Chateau Neuf. Um, has the, the exposition is north, slightly east facing. Um, and it's protected because it's not at the very top of the colline of Pignon. Um, the Gigas is then across the road and down about 200 meters to the north, almost due north, due north and a little east. Also sand. You know, again, back again, no galley roulet. Sand is a little different color, a little more more gold tinge to it, um, if you will. And what I thought would be interesting, would be fun, would be to try to do an experiment with terroir that kind of mirrored the philosophy of Burgundy, so that you would have similar soils, it was just really a question of, of, of altitude and exposition that was the defining characteristic between the two. And, um, you know, to my, in my, I'm very happy because also the other factors came together so well. Both parcels were pure Grenache. Uh, the age of the vines was very similar about 50, some of them. In the, in the Gigas, there's some 100-year-old vines. Um, and so we did the vinification exactly the same, uh, a traditional vinification with whole, you know, whole, whole cluster, all the stems. And um, <clears throat> Elevage was in old uh, Demi-Mui, uh, not old, but, you know, four or five years old. So it was essentially neutral. And so everything was... Exactly the same. The only difference is the soil and the exposition. And it's been really a lot of fun because, you know, some people prefer one, some people prefer the other, but everybody agrees they're very different. And, uh, and so it's just, it's, uh, uh, kind of proves the point that, uh, you know, one grower once told me in Chateau Neuf de Pop, you know, the growers who have been around a long time, they know which are the best parcels in every Lyrdi, and they trade to get the best parcels. And I thought to myself, yeah, you know, every parcel is going to, has, you know, speaks. And uh, it'd be fun just to isolate a couple, you know, not sand versus galet roule, clay limestone, but sand, sand. And it, uh, it's been fine. It's been fun. One of the things that struck me when I first tasted those wines is that the label seemed analogous to the, the old Trousseau labels. That's exactly right. Um, I asked Liliana and Jackie if it would be okay with them because uh, I was going to do this 
kind of experiment, you know, in homage to Burgundy. And it, it, and it, it is similar, yeah. In the intervening time between picking up Trousseau as your first producer and starting uh, involvement uh, of your own in 2009 with, with some wine, you picked up over well over 100 producers that you import, many from France, but also from other countries, like Austria comes to mind, a little bit of Italy. How did you end up moving into Austria, for instance? Well, um, Austria, um, that was in 2003. Um, my, my younger brother is with the state department and, uh, a diplomat. Um, and he was at that time in Vienna. He was the chef d'affaires of the embassy in Vienna. So he was essentially in, in charge of the embassy, uh, serving directly under the ambassador, uh, ambassador Brown. Um, and you know when your brother's there in a nice place in Vienna, you go visit him. And so I thought it'd be a good opportunity to uh, to also visit some some vineyards in in Austria and think about doing some importing because you know it was something that we didn't have in our portfolio. And of course, I've I really admired the wines of Austria, and it was something I was thinking about doing anyway. So uh, I used my my brother's place as a as sort of a Stepping off point uh, to go visit uh, growers, and uh, you know, did some reading and Falstaff and uh, other Austrian periodicals, and started put put together a, a portfolio. Just started it that year. Because one of the producers that you picked up was FX Peekler. Uh, how did that relationship uh, develop? Well, that was really uh, very very fortuitous. Um, so I called a number of growers that weren't represented, but I also called growers that were represented and just wanted to visit them to taste their wines, just as a reference for what they were doing in the, in the, with the 2002s um, compared to with what the people that I was visiting as prospecting uh, was doing, what they were doing with the 2002s. Um, <clears throat> and one of them that was... Uh, that did an- that it answered my phone call, and said I could come see them was 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 a Peekler family, and uh, so I did, and it was shortly after that that uh, they said I that they would like to sell some wine to us. What are they like, the Peekler family? Well, it's a wonderful family. Um, uh, Lucas Peekler um, is they have they have two children. Well, it's F X Peekler. And his wife Rudolfina, and they had two children, or have two children, uh, Lucas and Elizabeth. Um, and that first visit in two thousand three, I met both Lucas and FX. Um, and at that time, already Lucas was was doing pretty much the winemaking. Um, I think he started be- began doing it in nineteen ninety nine. And honestly, I think FX has always been happier in the vines. He loves, you know, like all these guys, like like Vatan and Trousseau and Chardin. First and foremost, a uh, grape grower. Um, <clears throat> he's very quiet, um, but, you know, like all great winemakers, very proud and very confident because 
you know, he works harder than anybody else. So, you know, maybe it, maybe he does, you know, what he does is probably just as good as anything anybody else does as well. Um, well, Lucas is, is more outgoing and just a very, very nice guy, you know, just, uh, very pleasant to be around, uh, modest, easygoing, cheerful, gracious. Um, Elizabeth also, she married Eric Kreutzler. And uh, so that's another domain that we've brought on naturally um, because uh, it's called Peekler Kreutzler um, because of Elizabeth. And, and that's sometimes in Europe, the wife's name comes first, much like Zint Umbrecht, because in that situation, Madame Zint had all the vineyards, and so her name was first. In this case, too, some of the vineyards came from, uh, I, th- I think, I don't know exactly what which vineyards they own, which vineyards they rent, but they put Elizabeth's name first as well. When I hear about the Peekler family, I, I'm often told that they are meticulous record keepers. Is that something that you've seen as well? Yeah, I think uh, on their... Um, on their website, there might be a picture of it. There's a, um, there's like a, a catalog or a log or what we might call a spreadsheet uh, dating back to 1929 that FX's grandfather kept of every vine. What did, what each vine did, what he did to each vine every year. Pruning, you know, deshooting, <laughs> date of harvest, yield, incredible. Every vine. So they know their vines. And another producer that you represent in the Vakau is Hertzberger. I wonder what they're like as people and as winemakers. Well, they're similar in the in the with peak to peaklers in the sense that they're both found they're both per- perfectionists. And uh, Franz Senior and Franz Junior, like FX and Lucas, um, are very committed to obtaining perfect physiological ripeness in their grapes. <clears throat> but they are at the opposite ends of the Vakao, and they have two completely different microclimates that they're working with. And um, so it's fascinating from, from a, both a commercial but also an intellectual uh, point of view to to notice to the, the, the differences between their two styles. Um, <clears throat> the eastern end of the Wachau, uh, Leuben, Unterleuben and Oberleuben, where the Peeklers are, um, is the beginning of the Wachau, just, just, um, just to the west of Krems. And there it's somewhat, the Danube is somewhat open and facing the east. Um, and you get the winds from the Pannonian Plain, from Hungary, coming to the west, and it's a warm microclimate. And then there's a sharp bend in the in the Danube, and then the sharp bend back, and then there's there are hills that come to block those those winds. And at the opposite end, by Spitz, um, you have a completely different microclimate, even though it's only nine miles upstream or upriver. You have much more influence of the Waldviertel, uh, that, uh, which is sort of like the end, the bottom of the Bohemian mountains uh, in Czech. 
And that is a very cool microclimate. It's uh, the steep wall of the Vakao, you know, then leads up to to this complete forest. And um, so Spitz is a is a cooler it's a cooler climate. Um, so within that, each one is seeking perfect maturity, but they have differing degrees of acidity, um, different terroir, and of course, certainly different different temperatures and different climate. And each one of them, fortunately for us, for all of us, um, understands the uniqueness of their of their terroir and are seeking to express that the best they can. So with peaklers, there's a there's a richness and a complexity and a, and a, and a depth, um, not at the expense of of freshness or balance, but it's it's their style and they express that in in all of their all of their wines. A little longer elevage, um, in wood, um, but so does so does Hirschberg. You know, they age in wood as well, um, but it's for a shorter time. And their their goal in their winemaking is the precision of flavors, the crystalline sort of nature of the Riesling and the Gruner from the cooler microclimate of Spitz. Sometimes with Hertzberger, I have the sensation that they're they're using Botrytis as a tool to express what they're looking for. Well, both Pekler and, and Hertzberger, I think there's a little. Um, I think there's probably less and less all the time. Um, I think... That's partially, well, I think it's entirely, not just partially, the view of the younger people, Lucas on the one hand and Franz uh, the younger on the other, that they're, that they're more comfortable in this style of, of uh, more purity. Um, I think also it's a, it's a, a statement about the times. Um, I think FX and Franz Sr. were... You know, we're more going towards a style of exotic and ripe. Um, and I think, too, there's a, an evolution, not only in the in the younger generation winemakers' uh, approach and palate, but also, I think, in the wine world. Um, I, I think we see, with our uh, feedback that we have from top sommeliers and uh, people who know a lot about tasting wine, there's a real trend in the United States towards wines of of more purity, clarity, expressiveness, and not just whites, but more and more for reds as well. Um, now that's not in all parts of the U.S., but uh, it's it's growing all around, particularly amongst sommeliers. Speaking of precision and purity, you recently added a producer in the creme stall that I thought really exemplified that. I wonder how that came about. Eigner? Yes, sir. Well, that was just um, that was just luck, because um, actually, when I come to think about it, all of all of these have just been luck. <laughs> um, but I was reading about them in Falstaff, and uh, they weren't they weren't rated that high as a producer. Um, but I looked at the scores of the the wines, and uh, they were very well very well scored. So it was like the rating wasn't keeping up with the scores. And um, so I went to visit them, and I could really tell that Wolfgang was a very serious guy. And uh, his son is um, doing—he's working now at Brundlmeier, um, and I'm sure getting a lot of great ideas there. Um, so it just struck me as a, a really good 
good, good future. Um, the prices were very reasonable, very fair. Um, but I, and I love the wines. The, the old, old vines, uh, Grunewaldliner from um, Zandgrube is just a, an amazing balance of, of richness, complexity, and yet uh, brightness. Tasting the wines for the first time recently, I was knocked out by them. I thought they were excellent. I'll be sure to tell them. <laughs> Back to other areas of the world for a second. You At one point, you brought in some Australian wine. Yeah, that was in the late... 80s and it was in the it was at the time when when it was just um all the attention was being turned to australian wines i was i was actually being re rejected uh by many by many retailers because I, I didn't have any wines that were expensive enough they they, they needed more expensive wines <laughs> um it's particularly australian wines expensive australian wines and you know i'm i'm I should say that I have always tried to find wines that that I that I love but at the same time I didn't always have the luxury um of being able to be independent of the market as much as some of the people that I admire and you know in colleagues that uh, of other importers um, who had sort of the financial freedom to to do just what they wanted to do. So at that time, I I did, you know, it was a more of a commercial thing to do Australian wines. But you got even, out of that. Even though it wasn't my, my palate. In fact, I tried to find Australian wines that were kind of like more, more terroir and more uh, precise and those didn't get very good scores, so I, I couldn't keep I couldn't keep them on my portfolio. Couldn't keep couldn't sell them. Besides Austria, where have you found fertile ground in in Europe, perhaps more in France or in other areas where you have moved the, the portfolio in more recent years? Well, I think um, one of the really um, um, rewarding experiences that I have is was to have met. Uh, the family, the Perez family at Mas Martinet. Um, you know, we import uh, Domaine Gobi uh, from the Roussillon. We represent them, which is a great honor, and they make you know fabulous wines. And Sarah is, you know, as many growers in France, but Sarah in the Priorat is a real kind of disciple of Gobi. And uh, she makes these just brilliant examples of Priorat for me, just um, you know, sort of like the Gobi of the Priorat, if you will. You know, very terroir expressive, completely, you know, biodynamic and, you know, not over extracted, no, not over oaked. Um, and just every wine is a, is a complete joy to taste. And, uh, I wish I had every producer in my portfolio was like Sarah Perez. They're just, those are great wines. And, uh, so those are that's one I'd love to do, you know do more things like that in Spain. In Germany, you know, we we do Heimann Lerwenstein. Um and those are great wines. They're kind of like the Pickler if you will of uh of the Mosel. Um he was one of the first to sort of leave the product at levels behind. Yeah. 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 He he clearly is his own man. His makes his own style. And uh brilliant wines. I mean just uh they they get to be 
kind of expensive <laughs> at the upper end, uh, but they're they're certainly worth it. Uh, but even at the at the entry level, the Schiefer Terrassen and the Van Blaum Schiefer are just brilliant examples of, you know, completely ripe, beautiful Riesling on 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 slate. What do you think convinced him that he didn't want to do Cabinet Spätlese Auslese anymore, and instead wanted to focus as QBA? My own, my own. I haven't really, honestly, you know, pinned him down on that. But I, I think it had a lot to do with his, you know, where he is in the Mosul. The 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 vineyards are extremely steep uh, of 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 Vinningen. but it's it's at the eastern end, and it's the warmest the warmest part of the Mosul. And uh, I think it lends itself very 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 well. You know, it's if I could make the analogy analogy, you know, he's on the eastern end of the Mosul and Pickler's on the eastern end of the Wachau, the warmer the warmer ends. You started in eighty five. How has the wine importing scene changed in the interim? Well, there are a lot more importers. <laughs> um and there are, you know, distributors now are direct importing. You know, in the beginning, there were the 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 best, the most famous importers like Kermit Lynch and um, Robert Chatterton and Vineyard Brands, uh, Robert Haas, and distributors pretty much re- represented those portfolios. In the last years, their you know distributors have gone direct, and they're finding their own uh, products, their own producers uh, for their market. For their for the state in which they're distributing, or for regional distribution, which makes it more difficult to to find growers who who want to work with an importer. Um, there there are basically two ways of looking at the United States market if you're if you're a producer. You know, one is to go direct with distributors in. 10 different states or 15 different states or 20 different whatever um, and be dealing with a lot of distributors and and um, you know, fulfill your your sales needs that way the other is to have a, a, a sole importer or practically one maybe two um, and to sort of turn the marketing over to them and to work with their their network of distributors, and that was that was what we did. We realized back in 1990, after our our wines 1991, after our wines started getting scored, that we had to develop a network of distributors because if we if we didn't, what what was going to happen is is importers and distributors from other parts of the country would read the scores of our wines and then go to the producer and say, "I'll buy them direct from you." Um, so that's why we became a national importer and developed a, a national network, even though it's on a much smaller scale than the more famous ones like you know, Vineyard Brands and Kermit Lynch, Bill Rosenthal. We see importers with 100-plus producers in a portfolio. Now, obviously, that spans multiple countries often, but is there a limit to how many really tremendous producers are out there today, or has everyone got enough room to work in? Well, I think one of the things that's most exciting about the wine business is that, you know, it changes every day. Uh, every day, uh, a new generation will come in some domain. You know, the son, the daughter, 
our property will be sold. Um, and it's constantly changing. Um, like Sarah Perez taking over from her father. Um, Laurent Charvin taking, you know, those were just examples for us. Um, and one of the things about being an importer is you just can't, you can't help yourself. You're just always looking for that next one that was like the Laurent Charvin discovery, you know, um, because it is a lot of fun to find someone like that, a, a brilliant young mind, a, a, a hardworking, passionate young person who, who wants to do something that, you know, his father didn't do or acquired, acquire a vineyard. You know, a lot of growers in the South, like Jean-Louis Triboulet in our portfolio, he's from, he's from the Jura, um, but he went to, to the Roussillon to, to acquire the vineyards because, you know, they were, they were easy to, they were cheap, <laughs> easy to buy. And his, his wife was Italian and she didn't want to live in the Jura. <laughs> um, and he's made some great wines. Um, so it's just, it's that, it's that finding, you know, that's, that's exciting. You know, I, I would say that honestly, I was, I was young and naive and, and Pat, and just kind of crazy when I started this 26 years ago. But now I'm older and naive and crazy. That's about the only difference. I'm just as sort of, you know, carried away as I was, you know, when I started. I mean, tasting, tasting exciting wine is, is an experience that just connects for a large number of people. You know, maybe not everyone. A lot of people, it just doesn't mean anything to them. But if, but if it does, you know, to, to that, to a person, there's, there's nothing just quite like it. That, that tasting, that really exciting wine. And, uh, that's what keeps me going. And I can you know, coming into contact with, with people in the business, you know, for whom it means the same thing is a lot of fun, you know, distributors, retailers, of course, sommelier are the, the most fun to talk with. Um, it's a, it's a great, it's a great experience. And, you know, connecting the two, the, the talented young winemaker with people who really, who really appreciate it and, and consumers, some of the best tasters I know are people who are not in the trade, like, like I wasn't you know, when I got started. Peter Wigan, he's found more than a few tremendous producers and he's still looking. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Peter Wigan of Wigan Selections. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe 
on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.